Let's get started. Give us a drum roll, Mikey. <laughs> what the hell was that? Was that like a fish call or something? <laughs> that was some Aquaman shit. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. You're listening to the Super Week, Super Weekly, Super Cat. Wait, I can't laugh at that, can I? <laughs> Do whatever you want. It's boys' night, baby. Uh, you're listening to the Super Week, Super Weekly, Supercast. I'm your host, Evan. And I am your host, Doc. Chris Bag, Levo Bag. And I am your host and guest, Michael the Paul, Jonathan the Davis, the Tastian. yeah that's right folks we're doing a little twist this week because uh the song that we're basing this episode around only features evan and i so mikey is going to be our guest we're going to do a deep dive on all things merkel turkle aka mikey tashin (laughs) are you still laughing at your own joke no just the just (laughs) <laughs> it's happiness. Yeah, dude, it's boys' night. It's just us fellas. Thank you for having me. I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm happy to be here. I gotta say, I'm feeling very inspired today. It's gonna be like, mm-hmm. if only we could have done this episode in the back of the ponies van on the benches at like 2.30 in the morning after a gig somewhere in the middle of Ohio. That is where we did our best work and probably our our best farts for one another over the years, so. I just remember spending a lot of time smoking weed in that van and laughing at everything. Yeah, it was the best. Oh, if we want to jump right into it, one of my favorite memories from the three of us sleeping in the van one night. So typically the way it would work out if we had to sleep in two separate camps the three of us would sleep in the van while the rest of the band went inside somewhere comfortable and too small to accommodate the seven people that we had in that van. I wouldn't say that it was necessarily based on accommodation. I would say that also the other members of the band would party a lot harder than we would. So oftentimes we would stay in the van because we're not trying to stay up super late and party. We would just like have our own little weed party in the van and, uh, you know, kind of just party with our eyes closed. Yeah, it was the van was more <laughs> reserved for those who didn't want to really be around people. Yeah, that's fair. We are the recluse of the uh, of that very social organization we were once part of. <laughs> One of my favorite memories, though, was when I, I don't remember if the house was locked already or there was too late for us to head in. But Mikey really had to use the bathroom, uh, presumably a number two, if memory serves. And you were debating like what you were going to do if we were just going to sleep through it. And you're like, what am I going to wipe with? Like, go shit outside. And somehow, I don't know what the circumstance was around it, but Chrissy had left a pair of her underwear behind. And so Evan tossed them to you and said, Hey, you can just wipe with this and go go shit outside. And you're like, I'm not going to wipe with that. It's going to give me sibling vagina ass syndrome or something. <laughs> Which is like one of the most buck wild phrases I've ever heard a human being utter. And that is like one of my favorite parts of how your brain works. You put things together in a way that nobody else I know does. And it's just like such a punchy and funny way to state things. I don't think Evan threw them at me. They might have just been in in like the door hole, like probably on the floor. By they were just sitting somewhere where you wouldn't expect someone's underwear. No, to just be I mean at, at that point when we toured, the back of the van was like Chrissy's lair, you know. So I'm sure Mikey was in the back back bench and just like grabbing shit off the floor and picked it up. And I was like, oh, you should probably use those. 
And like I understand the sentiment of you not wanting to use your <laughs> sibling's panties to wipe your ass with. And I don't think it was a legitimate suggestion either. Just just for in Evan's defense as well. You know, I might have been playing a little prank. <laughs> yeah. It was a goof on a spoof. Jaws on stage. Yeah, hey, I played I played it well. <laughs> I don't really believe in that. Oh, I certainly hope not. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least that's not the scientific term for it. <laughs> oh yeah, there's some other, they teach you something else in medical school, but yeah, it's a very real yeah. condition. <laughs> it affects dozens of people every year. Uh, yeah. But obviously, uh. our friendship goes way, way back at this point. And I know Evan has a pretty solid recollection of the first time that we met you, Mikey. Yeah, for the listener, not only were we all in the Super Weeks together, but we were also in, as we've mentioned on a number of episodes of Band Dangerous Ponies, that as you may have realized at this point, Mikey's sister was the uh, you know lead singer of, and we were all, you know, a ton of us around her, but a very big part of that band was the feeling of like family and like the very deep friendship that we had. So those ties with those people, all the members of the Dangerous ponies are like very strong still and the first time that we met you mikey it was such an impactful thing where you established your brand so immediately because the very first thing that you said to evan when you came into a show at the tritone this is before you were playing with us and you walked directly up to evan and you asked him do you know where i can buy some weed it's true yeah we were setting up on stage on the tritone you just walked up to me and you're Baggy ass sweatpants and a giant oversized <laughs> Phillies t-shirt. It's like a, the Delco <laughs> uniform. And you just said, hey, you know, I can buy some weed. Yeah. Oh, man, you came in hot. That's a long time of a tradition of Mikey walking around on tour, being able to find weed anywhere. I feel like that's your biggest skill. Like, you know, going on tour with you on that last Cheer Up tour we did where we played D&D in the van the entire tour and you created a character with magical overalls that had pockets that never ended, which is essentially who you actually are in <laughs> real life. I don't know if I can take full credit for that. I think that our boy Zach had some play in that, but Dad the High Elf, was, <laughs> that was my name and my... Your item, your special item was uh, your overalls that had limitless pockets. Oh, was it like a bag of holding? Like overalls of holding was the idea? Yeah. Pocket dimensions in the pockets? Yes. Damn, that's great. Dude, that's it, so perfect. Think about all the years we've toured with Mikey, and you're just ready for every occasion. You got all sorts of shit living in those pockets, and you can... Yo, I still <laughs> do. Even the last time I knew that I was like going to a place where they were going to have to ask me to empty my pockets, <laughs> I cleaned out my pockets, and when I got there, I still had so much shit to take out of my pockets, and they were like, wow, and I was like... I cleaned out my pockets to come here. <laughs> like I threw out so much trash. <laughs> it's it's hard. I'm even finding now, like it's about to get warm. I'm gonna have to have a book bag is gonna be the plan. So I can carry all kinds of shit on me. You know, I actually think about that. I go to the skate park like pretty constantly now and I, and I have to carry like a full complement of pads because for one, I'm an old man now and I can't bounce back from falls the way that I used to. But every time I put that backpack on, I think about you on tour with your like pinstriped denim backpack that you always had. And I think about like, how in the side pockets, there was always like a hockey puck and like a street hockey ball <laughs> and like golf just balls. Yeah, golf balls, like all the various <laughs> accoutrements that you would need for any athletic related situation that you constantly would find yourself in or make for yourself. <laughs> I always admire how good you were at squeezing out those moments on tour where you could occupy yourself and have a moment to just like smack a hockey puck against a wall somewhere while we were all going into a thrift store. Or the van. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or against the van, yeah. 
<laughs> I've never broken a window. Knock on some wood. Proud of you. <laughs> oh, man. Speaking of breaking a van window, do you remember that one time we were at Dangerous Ponies? We pulled up to, I think it was our first time at Wonder Root in Atlanta. And we had driven like for a very long time. Mikey, you did it in one shot by yourself and we were all really proud of you for like not stopping for any reason getting us there ahead of schedule and brooks had the, the door halfway open to get out but then everyone started to applaud for you because you know like, we we're just like celebrating your excellent driving that you did that day and so brooks let go of the door in order to applaud and without remembering that that door didn't have the cable to stop it from swinging all the way open so the door just swung wide open slammed against the front of the car and the window just shattered instantly and it i cut our applause very short was that your first tour that i wasn't on that yeah you were not there evan for that and that was yeah our very first so yeah i guess we played wonder root for the first time without you that's kind of a weird thing to think about wow we played that venue so many times i hope it's still there i would love to do another diy show there again in the future once touring resumes i would play a show wherever really yeah <laughs> but anyway mikey what is your recollection of of how we met do you have like your own sort of unique angle on that no i actually don't <laughs> and all the times we've talked about this i've always tried to rack my brain and like tried to remember it, but I feel like I was always just like a ball of what I didn't know to be maybe anxiety, but also a weed smoke hungry kid <laughs> who just always wanted to find and smoke the weed. <laughs> it's shocking to kind of hear you say that, that you love weed. Well, no, 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 no. That's the most like obvious statement of all time, but that you were had anxiety at that point because you always have this serenity to you. I mean, you definitely have your, your spikes of uh, intense emotions, you know, but you generally are a very calm and a soothing person to be around. So this goes to show you never know what's operating under the surface for other people. Yeah, I agree. I didn't even think that you were an anxious person. Even now. I, I had, I didn't either. Everyone always like, you're just always so chill and like, you know, you're always just like, fuck it. I think I was just able to like hide behind cigarettes and, you know, weed and just definitely able to like mask, you know, my feelings in certain situations. I know it sounds like so like weird because I'm only like almost two months off of cigarettes now. And it's like just really brought up like a I see how much anxiety I have. People told me they I seemed anxious, and I just feel like maybe I always was anxious, and I didn't know it was that. Well, also, just habits and coping mechanisms are huge, whether they're productive or destructive. I am, you know, coming to my own realizations about how bad my anxiety has been throughout my life too. Evan and I were talking about that this morning, and I just learning to strip those coping mechanisms away so you can just face it and get to the core of it. Because if you just keep doing that, like you were saying, like for one, cigarettes are addictive in their own way chemically, but also having that habit, that ritual to distract you from your own feelings and give you consistency from like this external source. Sure, those coping mechanisms help in the moment, but it doesn't make that underlying issue go away. And I think it's only a positive thing, you know, not just for your health, of course, but, you know, to, to kind of face that directly and and work through it. I think this year, this pandemic year, is like ever, we're forcing many of us to go on that journey where our rituals are gone and we have to just face that directly. Honestly, I feel like I should have taken this journey earlier, you know, even like made promises to my wife that I would have done this earlier. I, you know, only think that the important thing is that I finally made it. Proud of yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Thank very you. proud. <laughs> but uh, it, it is important to just be here and... I don't, I don't know. It's wild. It's wild to be here. 
And I, honestly, I, I was just coming from my mom's house. And on the way there, I was just like, I was pretty close to her house, like, you know, a few minutes away. And in my head, I just thought, like, I'm going to my mom's house. I'll smoke a cigarette. And then I was like, whoa, I haven't had that thought in a long time. Like, it's been, you know, quite a few weeks since I was like, well, let me just have a cigarette before I do this thing, like, before I get to my mom's. I was just like, wow. But then I was just like, you know what? Like, I'm so happy that I'm not. Let me just roll down my window and take some deep breaths and just be happy to be breathing. How did it feel? <laughs> Hell yeah, dude. Oh, it feels good. Honestly, like, getting over the the hardest cravings, like, when I'm finally past it, like, thinking back on it, I'm just like, wow. I just am so glad I'm, I didn't, you know? Yeah. And, well, just, you're tapping into something there, too, where when you're getting back to part of that routine where you would be smoking in that moment, it's going to trigger that feeling again. And that's, like, the hardest part to fight. And, yeah, you're doing it, dude. Quit Quitting isn't yeah, easy. Yeah, dude. No, it's not. But, you know, you're not missing anything. And you're gaining a lot. And, I honestly, it sucks. I feel like I've wasted a lot of time. I guess like friendships, you know, just like takes me away. It has taken me away for, you know, I guess hours from y'all on tour and stuff, like on my journeys to go buy cigarettes and smoke cigarettes. Not that we're doing everything all the time that I have to be there for, but, you know, it just takes you. In your own defense, like alone time is important on tour. Yeah. And rare, yeah. But like say like even like a dinner. If you're out to a dinner with friends and you're a smoker, like you just want to get to your next cigarette. Mm. So it's like really hard to enjoy. You're out of the moment. A meal. Yeah. Like you're, you know, you just always have this little monster being like, pleasure me. Go have a cigarette. (laughs) At least I see that in myself. Some people it's different for, I'm sure. But I was very strongly addicted to nicotine. Mm. I can't even imagine hypothetically a tour where you were driving with the window closed the whole time. Because <laughs> I feel like that was just <laughs> such a consistent part where it was always cracked, you know, for extended part. Because you know, we never had or rarely had functioning heat in the van uh, to the yeah. point where we couldn't put our feet on the ground for too long if it was the winter because our feet would go numb. Well, we could partially blame Converse on the. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's that too. <laughs> but having that window cracked and that constant like freezing blast is just like such a consistent part. I wonder what other small things would be changed about our experience once we're back on the road someday. It's a it's an interesting thought experiment. It's you never think about how deep the tendrils kind of reach and weave through your life from your habits. I know, it's so different. I think about even just playing drums. Like I haven't played drums in such a long time. I just want to see what my stamina is like. Will it feel good? <laughs> it's going to feel great. I mean, it's going to fucking feel great. I can't I <laughs> fucking can't wait. <laughs> Mikey, just, just set up your goddamn basement. Let me give you these silent cymbals and these silent drum heads. Just yeah, do it, dude. Seriously. You got to do it. Or you probably have some like painter's buckets around and stuff. You know, put them on little yeah. sticks and just go to town on that thing. Yeah. I got whole silent drum heads for Mikey to just hit in the basement. They feel like real heads. It's all you need. Mikey, how do you feel about electric drums? Would you want to have an electric drum kit? I would have one just to have it around because I think playing is just fun no matter what. Just doing the motions is definitely half of it. So whether you're playing on like an electronic kit or you're playing on a real kit, it still like forces you to put your hands in certain spots. I guess electronic kits can be, you know, even more customizable, hitting rims and you can do different shit and cool stuff with that. I just hate the lag, dude. Every time I use them, they just have so much lag, and it drives me nuts. I don't know. Some of them are they are so nice. I guess, like, the high-end. I guess no nice. one I know has any high-end ones, you know? Well, 
<laughs> I was going to say my uncle owns a high-end one. Texas uncle? No. He lives like near my dad in South Jersey. Wait, so how many uncles do you have who are drummers in your family? Is this just like a family business? <laughs> I guess like two of them. Steve, Texas uncle, who we stayed with, and my uncle Paul. So wait, is it one of those uncles who got you into playing the drums? Yeah, I was definitely watching. Like My dad had drums. I remember having like visions of drums in my basement as a child. I don't remember like my dad playing them at all. I remember like seeing them and just they're like blue sparkle. And I just remember being like, damn, that's cool. I still didn't and couldn't really fully grasp drums at that point. But then uh, my dad and his brother played together in a cover band. They slayed. They would play like 45 to 60 songs a night. The Brick Band. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Just like of all course. classic rock. You had that drum head for a long time, right? Yeah. Still have it. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. Does your dad ever play anymore? He just started, actually, I think. Started playing with his brother, which is wild. Yeah. I wonder what that's like having it be such a part of your life for so long and then just stopping. Yeah, right. I know. He's like, if you come down, like, make sure you stop by your sisters and grab my guitar. It's like, damn. What? <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever jam with your dad? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he loved, he loved playing, like, ACDC. When was the last time you jammed with him? Oof, I can't even remember. Have you jammed with him at all since you've been a touring musician? Because I feel like your chops are probably, you know, mega high grade, and it's going to feel great, you know? He's going to be like, ah, jamming with my son fucking rocks. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely don't think I have. Well, Mr. Tajin, you're in for a surprise. The jamming together was definitely when I was younger, like middle school. I don't think we even had drums at his house, really. Yeah, the brick band drum set. We got those from my Uncle Paul. Oh. And then they kind of just lived in the city. So for all the listeners out there, the brick band drum set is this really great 70s pearl kit, which is like a fiberglass over wood interior, which I didn't know about because, you know, years later I got really into different materials that drums are made of and different woods and how it affects the tone and the sound and stuff. Because, you know, as a recording engineer, I'm into all sorts of shit like that. So I spend hours and hours just reading about it and learning. And uh, I got really interested in fiberglass drums. And then lo and behold, I find out that these drums that Mikey had were fiberglass covered wood all along. And, you know, I've always loved the sound of these big, it's like a 14 inch, a 16 inch toms uh, and a 24 inch kick. And it's just this big booming. I mean, you could listen to a Super Weeks record and hear it. It's on at least better heavens for sure. Yeah, I don't know. I just love the sound of your drum kit. If you've ever seen Mikey play live in Thin Lips or I guess Dangerous Put, no, we started bringing it around in the Super Weeks and Thin Lips is when you started touring with that kit. Yeah. You used like the weird little red one in the ponies, like Chrissy's, the one Chrissy has in her room. I remember early on you were using parts of drum kits that belong to all your three jet. of us. Yeah. 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 You had my my weird jet kit that I think was like a sub, sub Sears quality uh, garbage I know, kit. I definitely, I'd be like pieced together people's drums. Oh, you had that tiny Rogers kit for a minute. I bought that from Koof. I guess he got that drum set from UArts. It was like a, like a drum set for students potentially. It was really tiny. It was like 20-inch kick drum, 12-inch high tom. It was, that was such an impulse thing. I, didn't, I In my heart, I like didn't really want to buy the drum kit, but I said it. It was like, do you want to sell it? Then I bought it, and I was like, this is not really... Not for you. But I feel like I've played a kit similar to that, where Marky, great fucking drummer, 
future guest Mark Quinlan. Yeah, I remember like he would just put like a G one and G two on toms and stuff, and just like find a low note, and it would just sound like fucking gold. And I'm just like, God, I'm gonna do that. And I tried to do that, and like didn't really work. And I was just like, Ah. I feel like we've gotten there though. <laughs> In all of the years yeah. of us tuning drums together, man, I have such fond memories of when we're making better heavens. Like, fucking, we built that wild-ass snare drum. I bought an 8-inch shell and had the pearl floating body, so we ended up having a 9 by 14 snare drum for that record, and I just remember it would go out of tune all the time, and just, like, we were all fucking, you know, chewing magnesium and smoking massive amounts of weed farting our farting our brains out mikey would just get like so dialed into the zone of tuning that snare drum that like we would just leave the room for like 45 minutes and mikey would just like get so fucking dialed in on tuning that snare drum and then he would get up and have a cigarette break from the stress of tuning the drum and then we'd come back and it was like fucking seven octaves higher than, yeah. than when we had left before and we're just like, dude. And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> it's actually. And then the head was shot, right? Yeah. The head was just fucking toasted. It was just like, that was a lot of problems that drum. And I think I even tried to tune it some more after the cigarette. And then we like came to the conclusion that the head was just it's toasted. You know, yeah. I mean, recording that record, it was just five days in a row of us like live tracking. So you were really fucking, you know, going to town on those drums. I feel like we did, you know, 20, 30 takes of some songs, you know? It was a lot. God. Can't imagine just, it's been such a long time since I put heads on drums even. Boy, oh boy, do I have a couple drum sets that need reheading. If you're ever bored, you want to head <laughs> down to the studio. Kylie's got about 26 drums there. Oh, God. 26 sets. Yeah, I don't know. I love drums a lot. I appreciate you as a drummer. And I just love the sound that they make when you hit them. Thank it's you. Perfect. Thanks. <laughs> Inspired by everyone around me. Like a lot of people have said on this podcast, you know, all yeah. of our friends are the greatest musicians. You know, that's a weird thing I think about all the time where in my mind, all of our friends' bands are like the big bands. Like they are the famous bands in my head. They are the bands that I care the most about. And whether or not they have the fan base to necessarily support that way of thinking, it's because we know some of the most incredibly talented people who are making music currently. We're very lucky to be a part of this scene. I feel like it's kind of, what is that, that saying? I think I've used it before on here. Um, all ships rise with the tide. It kind of just brought everybody up even more to like a more like strong and higher level as musicians. It's just a really, it's a good scene. I mean, you are the community that is around you and we lucked into a pretty damn good one. Yeah, yeah it's nice. I like doing this podcast and uh, having an excuse to talk to my friends about absolutely nothing for <laughs> a couple hours. Mikey, tell us your experiences in your brain. Which ones? <laughs> <laughs> when you think about Big Mamas, the thing that kind of brought, our whole community together, what do you think of first? What is the quintessential experience for you? I guess maybe it's the big paper mache heads that would look down at you. Of Peter and Craig from uh, yeah. Peter and Craig, yeah. <laughs> they were our, our watchful sort of like Zardoz overlords who were... Uh, <laughs> wow. Good job putting a Zardoz <laughs> reference into that. That's good stuff. As a man who professionally wore a Speedo for a long time, I think it's important to represent the number one Speedo film, Zardoz. Shit rules. <laughs> that might be the best movie I've ever seen of all seven movies I've seen. 
Yeah, if you've watched all the original James Bond films and you don't know where to go next to where to watch Sean Connery, that's <laughs> definitely the it's the exact same kind of movie. Believe me, it's it's perfect for you. Or if you haven't watched any James Bond films, don't worry about them and just watch Zardoz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the warehouse, such a magical place. There's just so many amazing people. You lived there for like two or three years. Yeah, you're, you're one of those people. Not, not really, though. I didn't really live there, live there, I would say. How many nights do you think you slept there in all that time? I don't know. A bunch. <laughs> <laughs> to your point, that your bedroom was largely the Thin Lips and Super Weeks rehearsal space because you were so infrequently sleeping in there. So we would just like use it as our own personal practice room. Yeah. Kind of rocked. It definitely rocked. Yeah. I can remember just setting up a PA speaker. The space is so limited in that room with having all of us and all of our gear in there, having one of the PA speakers on top of your mattress on your bed to use that as a stand. And you were tucked between the mattress and the back wall. And then we had all of our amps lined up facing you. I think we also put one of our amps on the bed too. If, if memory well, eventually serves. we just started picking the bed up. Yeah. Our own manual Murphy bed scenario. Yeah, a lot of good memories. Lots of good records made in that space. It's a good time. Yeah. A lot of sweat. A lot yeah. of blood. <laughs> Should we listen to the song for this week? Yeah. I don't, even, I don't play in this song. Yeah, it's we fine. we got to listen to it. And I would love to hear your take on it. I don't even know if you've really listened to those. This is one of the weirdest ones oh, that we did. Oh. <laughs> this one I recorded the drums on in my parents' basement of the house I grew up in. And I sent them to Chris, and Chris played everything else. <laughs> and yeah, then Chris it, put vocals on it, and I did some harmonies, and that was it. It's a weird one. I wrote the song about soda. Let's take a listen. <laughs> even fucking weirder than I remembered it being. <laughs> I fucking remember just about every hit. <laughs> I forgot that guitar solo is in the end too. That was extremely over the top and unnecessary. But yeah, if memory serves, I rec those guitar tones were me. I think I tracked a fuzz pedal direct into my inbox and then just used a digital amp in Logic or something just to like 
get it done because this is one of the few ones that we actually didn't record at the warehouse i don't think a single note of it was recorded at the warehouse i thought you did the guitar with your creamy dreamer big muff through the uh the squire practice amp your sister gave you. oh is the practice amp that's what it is yeah i knew it was like a scrunky kind of squelched up sound yeah it's <laughs> bizarre everything every choice on this one is very weird i still love it yeah. i like it I'm happy that my childhood drum set, that Pacific drum set with the same fucking <laughs> kick head on it, uh, since I was a child, made it on a song. I love how it sounds. I love that Corey's broken cymbals made it onto the song. <laughs> if you listen close enough, the fucking crash cymbals are just like so just like <laughs> just like i remember i mean i still have Corey's broken cymbals to this day he has like a 17 inch crash you know when you just like mikey you've broken cymbals before where you just like you know don't have the money to replace them so you just keep playing and eventually like it just like peels kind of like yeah. an orange yeah. like i just remember a fucking like four inches peeled off of one of my brother's crashes and it's just like that's what he had still set up because there was no crack in it anymore. It was just like this weird, sharp, jagged, edged symbol that had no cracks because the crack just broke off. And that's what you're hearing is that symbol. Additionally, where this song came from for me, too, is this is right after I had first listened to Of Montreal. And so this at that time was how Of Montreal sounded kind of filtered through my own classic rock chaos brain. And it turned into this like absolute nightmare of chords that I created. <laughs> I don't think I could figure out what that ending is at this point. It's just like a bunch of weird, just like nonstop turnarounds modulating up. I can mouth it to you. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. I've listened to this song so many times. Oh, really? Well, that's, I'm glad that, that yeah, somebody give likes it to this. us. Well, Evan is like always like hooked up my iPod or whatever with like all of the weak stuff and yeah I gave you everything I also would you know throw a little bit of John Butler trio on there for <laughs> you a little bit of Dave <laughs> it was so funny dude when we first started touring and like we didn't really know each other super well but every it would be like you know we would all put on different things in the van I remember Chrissy would often uh put on that of Montreal record Chris, this is, by the way, maybe five or six years after you heard of Montreal. Well, this was in 2012. You know, I avoided them through college. I just, like, wasn't interested in listening to them, aside from Cherry Peel. Chrissy would play Adele's Arboretum on tour all the time. And I was just off in my own brain space. I was just somewhere <laughs> else floating around in my own thoughts. Like, I was so frequently just, like, in the ADD universe within my own brain before I knew that I had ADD. I missed out on so much that was happening directly in front of me. You don't remember the Chrissy Kissed the Corpse song? Oh, man. Chrissy used to put that on all the time. I believe you. You remember it, Mikey? <laughs> Chrissy Kissed the Corpse? Yeah, the, the Of Montreal song. Well, you're going to ask the, the living weed cloud if he remembers something, too? You're, you're talking to the wrong two guys, my dude. <laughs> See, I remember primarily a ton of Beyonce being played in that van, which I am all for. As we talked about previous on a previous episode, Mikey and I were in that Beyonce cover band together. And then, of course, the Britney Spears comeback album with the dubstep songs on it. I think what it was, it's the songs that stuck out to me the most were the ones that Brooks would create his own choreography for in the front seat. And that's what would make me engaged with the music that was happening, just like watching him have a blast dancing along with whatever was on the radio. I just had a different 
discipline and a different origin of music that I loved when I was younger, funk and classic rock and jazz. Like I just That's what you brought in the van. Tower of Power is my big one in Graham Central Station. In the van, you would often play Sly because that's what we all liked. Oh, well, that and was that, the, that you was, got me into Sly. <laughs> that was the one that yeah, exactly. I would play those other bands, but you guys did not like them. But Sly David and the Family Bowie Stone was our play. compromise. Oh yeah, and oh, I'm yeah, a big Bell time Bowie baby. Yeah. Well, you actually showed me Bell and Sebastian, and that for me was where I was able to kind of pivot more into other bands that you liked, like of Montreal. Bell and Sebastian is just the perfect band, like the perfect pop music band. And it's not obvious, but we have a deep influence from them, specifically from their song I'm a Cuckoo, where they kind of crib the Thin Lizzy style and that really reinforced that harmonized guitar structure that became such a core part of our DNA. I do attribute a big part of that to Bell and Sebastian reinforcing that for us. I fucking love that band. Oh, such a good band. I cannot oversell how important Sly and the Family Stone is as a band. I know everybody is at least peripherally aware of them because they were one of the most popular bands in history, at least around the Summer of Love in 1969 and the next few years after that. But most people think of everyday people or dance to the music, or even courtesy of Shrek 2, Thank You for Let Me Be Myself, that uh, brought that song back with the entire cast of Shrek 2 singing it over the end credits. Unfortunately, the original is much better, trust me. But people don't often delve into the record that was most often in rotation in the Dangerous Ponies band, which was Fresh, which is after most of the band quit, it's primarily Sly Stone in his sort of drug-addled stupor recording it on his own. Similarly to <laughs> this, our song this week, Real Sugar, where I was just in my anxiety-addled stupor recording that, that chaos on my own. But Fresh is the inverse of that, where it is perfectly chill while still also being intensely soulful and has some of his most meaningful lyrics that he had written throughout his career. And I highly recommend that everybody go listen to Fresh by Sly and the Family Stone. Mikey, I feel like we just like love the fucking drums on that record. So fucking unbelievably tasteful. Tasteful is even... Is there a word for more tasteful? Yeah, the most tasteful? Yeah, yeah seriously. Well, I think the key to it also is not only was it tasteful and subtle, but it was also very unique in how the grooves were established. Uh-huh. Um, and in Time has some of the most perfectly syncopated beats without you noticing that there's something different about the structure of the rhythms in it. And every fill comes in like just strange enough of a place that it grabs you without distracting you. Rhythmically, just top to bottom, it's it's a perfect record. Well, there's your standard... Uh casio kind of drum beat you know yeah. that's why i feel like it fakes you out because it in the beginning of the song the way it starts is that like you know it gives you like that casio beat i yeah. feel like another big part of the van was mikey would very often put on uh the mars volta specifically deloused in the comatorium and he would drum along with every single drum hit on the record yeah. because i believe that you could play that entire record front to back verbatim <laughs> Yeah, I used to love that shit. You don't anymore? Uh, I just haven't listened to it in a long time. I, I like quiet as of late. Oh, so you've reverted back to your roots of uh, DMB, Dave himself. Oh, well, now <laughs> I'm like driving every day for my job, so I just want to pay attention and not miss a turn. So I'm like afraid to listen to a podcast or 
let my brain wander in any kind of way. So well, the just, good thing about your phone, Mikey, is you can put on whatever and then whatever navigation system you're listening to is going to talk over the song. Yeah, I mean, I use a work phone to navigate me. Oh, word. I'm, I'm sure, I think the Spotify is on that phone potentially. You're delivering for Primal Supply now, the uh, a, a local meat company in Philadelphia. Yeah. You don't have your own sort of personalized playlist for that? Like maybe you could call it like Meat Beats or something? <laughs> meet the meats meet the meats baby you put some tracks on that have a um, slab base for those big old feed, meat slabs feed the meat <laughs> feed the meat that's your taco bell promotion <laughs> yeah. i feel like the message is getting pretty muddled right there <laughs> yeah that's true yeah you're right maybe people won't understand the feed the beat <clears throat> yeah sorry <laughs> Oh, we sure did eat Taco Bell a lot on tour, though, huh? Yeah. Oh, that's the lifeline of a touring band right there, baby. It also, that's the best way to have a vegan option, no matter what state that you are in, in, in the contiguous 48. You know, I did find myself grossed out eventually with the Taco Bell. Really? You found your threshold. Oh, yeah. Did the Super Weeks have... Did we ever get it? We never had the feed the beat... I almost said feed the meat again. Feed the beat promotion for the Super Weeks. We just were dedicated shoppers. I think they would have lost too much of their revenue... If they gave us free Taco Bell, so that made it put the whole company under. Thin Lips had it, and like, holy fuck, when they send you that brick of cards, it's like, fuck. Oh, I had it in cold fronts, man, and we would all have an even amount of cards to buy Taco Bell with. And because I was like, oh, this is free food, I'm just going to get two bean burritos every time I go. Or alternatively, if I'm planning on eating it over the course of one long drive, I would get the $10 box where you get 10 oh, burritos man. for $10. Yeah, you did that so many times. <laughs> That was my move because I wanted to stretch that out as much as possible. And within two weeks, the rest of the Cold Fronts guys had spent all of their Taco Bell money because they were getting like deluxe chalupas and like decked out Mexican pizzas and doing all kinds of crazy custom stuff. And then like I had to be like their own Taco Bell sort of food pantry for them going forward because I had to reportion out my cards to them so they could continue to eat Taco Bell. And then they were, you know, they were a little more wise after that. Oh, it's such a such a blessing to have free food on tour, especially vegan food. Like those early days of touring, it was torture. I was getting salads at Subway. That's the saddest thing you can do. That's not good salad. It's not even good sandwiches. Wouldn't you not even get a salad? You would just get condiment bread? Well, when I was too hungry from getting salads, I was like, I need calories. So I would get a condiment sandwich and just have them put every single condiment they had as much as possible on a loaf of their plain ass <laughs> Italian bread. It was oh, so man. bad, man. That the shit The one time sucked. they like punked you, right? And they gave you like so fucking much. Because you were like, give me oh, as much yeah. as you can. And they fucking like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a slop bucket. But yeah. yeah, I was in hog heaven that day, man. Like that's that's what I needed. You guys remember when we started touring, like phones didn't have GPSs? Well, th yeah, we were touring at a time before the concept of the app was invented. No, I feel like there were there really no apps. No, I feel like we had apps. I just the, feel like there. The smartphone, the initial iPhone came out on our third tour, I believe. I remember I got our first iPhone out of the group and it was a big ass brick. Thing was heavy as hell. And until that point, there was no way for us to have a convenient GPS, I'll say. The concept of, you know, internet everywhere was still fairly new. And so we had to print out that tome from MapQuest to find our way to Texas and back. Evan, I don't think you were on that tour initially, the MapQuest tour. 
Uh, I have done MapQuest tours for sure. I remember the earliest Ponies tours, we did do MapQuest stuff, like very early on. And then my parents let us borrow their world GPS. And then, Mikey, I think you had some kind of like a TomTom GPS or something. Yeah, Garmin, my dad. Absolute game changer. Not to just be the old guys, but all of you young bands out there don't understand what a weird era that was because none of us had really used an actual map to navigate anywhere. So that was a skill that we lacked. And then MapQuest was, well, I guess you might not even know what it is. It was a site similar to Google Maps where you would go to look things up, but you couldn't do it on a cell phone at that time. So we'd have to get the directions to, you know, at that time, Texas and back to Philadelphia and then just print all of it out. So I think it was like a 70-page set of directions when Christy had printed all of it out that she had in a binder that we used to get to and from. And if you missed a single turn, the oh rest of God. that information was useless. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, what do we do then? Like, I guess I vaguely remember taking out, like, the map and, like, looking at, like, a literal map and being like, okay, well, we're on this road and, like, finding where we are. I, like, vaguely remember doing that a few times. But I, I just don't recall, like, having to abandon the packet. <laughs> the few times that we did it, because we were dedicated to it. Like, that was our our lifeline while we were out there. So we were usually on top of The bro of it. pilot. Yeah, the bro pilot, exactly. <laughs> I think it was usually just, like, we had a U-turn. Like, we were like, okay, what's the last highway that we recognize that's on this list? Where do we see a sign for that? And then just go the opposite direction on that highway until we saw the correct exit number. And then get off again. And then you turn again so that we can make sure we were going the right way. It was a very, very janky process. Dude, I loved that time period. Do you guys remember your very first tour, like our very first full U.S. tour, like what it was like to see the country for the very first time? Oh, man. Traveling across bridges over huge bodies of water was such like a beautiful, impactful thing for me because it was like the serenity of being on the water without being in a boat and feeling the rocking of it and just being able to gaze out infinitely to the horizon. I can remember being in awe of that at the first time we were out there seeing that. It was such a beautiful thing. I mean, it's what we worked towards. So it was awesome to achieve that goal. Finally get there. Finally get to California. Yeah, man, those California shows. Wrote a song about it. I do remember finally getting to California like that, though. Like, that was being in the Mission District, getting those burritos. Oh, the burritos. I feel like that was the best part of us as a group touring together. Even though, like, I had the vegan dietary restrictions, we were very much in line about going on food explorations like that. And Evan, I remember we went to... What was the name of that place that had the incredible verde sauce in either Arizona or New Mexico? Oh, there was the, that was a Super Weeks tour when we were in Arizona and we were like looking for food and we went to a burrito joint and, you know, they only had red or green. And we were like, what? And they were like, yeah, red or green. And we were like, okay. And what the burrito just ended up being like a tortilla filled with meat in green sauce. And it was amazing. And that's when I learned that all of the burritos I was familiar with were Americanized. Yep, that's what we do here. But yeah, I just remember getting that verde because I sat there just eating chips and verde the whole time. And it was the most unbelievable taste. Because I feel like that's a big thing too is so much of America is homogenized. Like you were alluding to with the uh, burrito element there. Like we like to have things be consistent and predictable and we're a nation ruled by franchises and the whole appeal of franchises like your KFCs, your McDonald's, et cetera, is that they are consistent 
and predictable, and you know exactly what you're going to get every time you're there. And so we're doing so much erasure of the unique regions of America by doing that and getting to experience a little bit of that as we are traveling across the nation together in the cuisine, but also in many other ways. That's the best part because people forget how big this country is. This is one of the, the this landmass wise, like one of the, you know, the larger countries in the world. It's really quite big. Yeah. And there's just like a lot of, you know, different terrain, different environments and different cuisine that results from that too. That's just like one of the best parts of touring. It's just like something about late night drives, getting to reflect with whoever you get to be up with that time, you know, cause there's no set schedule to anything and someone could feel like partying sometime and, you know, you really get to know the people that you're on the road with. And I must say, we've we've had a pretty easy, <laughs> as a large group of people touring, I feel like personally and from a lot of people I hear, you know, you just get a lot out of that. Like, it's good for your soul getting to see the country and just like being there and taking yourself through it. It feels amazing to see it. And it just opens up your horizons. Yeah. Meeting those different people too and connecting with events more, like sort of national events. I can remember... On that ponies tour, we went to New Orleans only a f- maybe two or three years after Katrina and traveling around the city and seeing the water line on the buildings from where the water had reached during the flood. It was yeah. still distinct in all of those buildings and the cleanup had only gotten so far because it was, you know, largely like a poor city. I didn't recover quickly from that and just being more plugged into that event and that being able to appreciate it. And we actually met a guy who we were talking to on the street, Mary, he was sitting on his bicycle um, as we were walking by and we talked to him for a while. He was someone who helped evacuate people out of the city and he helped rescue a lot of people. And that's like a knowledge and experience and interaction that I really value and that we wouldn't have seen firsthand if we weren't touring the way that we were on the level that we were. Cause that's a big part of DIY too. Like you have to be more connected with the places that you're at because you're relying on people to support you and direct you a lot differently than if you have cohesive tour management, uh, which we never have had. <laughs> a lot of it is about personal connection and uh, being, you know, feet on the ground. I can't even verbalize just like how many images of shows are just like going through my head in all our, you know, over a decade of touring together and playing music together. It's probably almost 15 years at this point, guys. And it's like, like right now, I'm just thinking about that time we played that show in Toledo, the very first time we were oh, in Toledo. Oh, in that scary ass house. <laughs> Yeah. It was the scary house. And oh, like, it sucked. It was all like weird oh, kids person... posters on the wall with their like like the characters' faces like either scribbled out. Yeah, or replaced. That, was, that was cool. The artist. <laughs> well, the woman who was in that band who was a painter, her art was great, but there was also like weird collages everywhere that were deeply unsettling, like like serial killer magazine collages that were all over the walls. I'll say this, yeah. you know, touring. There were a lot of like no shade on people making music, and I'm really glad and proud that everyone is out there making music but there were just like a lot of dudes with a guitar and a drum machine and like a metal zone just like doing some weird art shit and it was just a really weird time to experience you know you're just like okay i wasn't ready for that you know uh i don't yeah i guess i don't want to talk shit on them uh but speaking of talking shit i remember that chris set up a blog of the worst bands that we'd ever seen and video would, would videotape them. Oh yeah. I'm not scared to talk shit, baby. Looking back on it, there were a lot of experiences where I would watch bands and just be like, this is awful. 
And like now I look back and I'm just like, you're doing your thing. You know, I respect that you had the courage to get up in front of people and you did this. And you know what? As I get older, the greater my appreciation is for that. Different levels of musicianship. Not even that. Just like the fact that you're willing to put yourself out there. Because like when I was younger, you know, it was a lot harder for me to do acting and stuff in front of people than it was to do music. Uh, In music, I've always gotten to hide behind a guitar or something. But when I was doing acting and whatnot, it it was very polarizing because you're completely naked and it's just you. All eyes are on you. And with music, I've never felt like, I guess, the feeling that some people do of, you know, being nervous or putting yourself out in front of everyone. Because I guess I had that earlier experience of acting and like being truly naked and not having anything to hide behind besides for, you know, whoever else you're acting with. You know, the older I get, the more I understand that that feeling that I had acting is a lot of people have with playing music. And, you know, I I only want to prop people up and just like commend them for doing that. I mean, Chris, you've talked about on a number of these podcasts where it's super difficult for you to get in front of an audience sometimes. And like, you're just horrified of making a mistake. I've talked about how like with age, you kind of learn to soften with things, but specifically there is a certainty of youth that comes with that, where you believe once that you formed your first opinion, that this is the truth. Like you found the truth because you have your own taste in things and there's a uh, an element where you're you haven't yet experienced all the diversity of possibilities of what music could be or art could be and so you don't know that there's something else to challenge what you have already figured out for yourself and that's something that i had very young where i had that confidence about everything that i believed because i hadn't yet considered the other possibilities as to how music could be made or the significance of imperfect and not necessarily scholarly music still had uh, a true value to it. And over time, especially like we've produced so many records now together and, and individually, and it just gives you a better perspective on those things and a perspective on the challenge that you were describing of just being able to get out there and do it. And even if it isn't perfect, like it doesn't need to be, nobody starts perfect. And in truth, nobody ever reaches perfection genuinely. And every single time, it's just a different degree of being brave enough to show people what you're trying to make. I guess it's a lot of like when you're on tour, you just see so much music. I just didn't appreciate the people putting themselves out there or think about what it is that everyone's doing and how it's difficult for a lot of people because I would just see so many people doing it every night and it would just become monotony to me and it would just become like you know, oh, this is the thing that I do and like everyone does this and it's not an abnormal thing. This is the world I live in. Thinking about the dude in Toledo with the metal zone and the drum machine and the screaming and like thinking about even in a different realm, like, do you guys remember this? In San Francisco, we played this amazing warehouse space and this woman played with a looper and Mm -hmm. like, I remember her set fucking floored me. I don't remember her name. I don't remember how any of the music went. I just remember being so blown away that somebody had that much proficiency on multiple instruments and using a looper. Like, fuck Keller Williams. Like, this this person was the real deal. I still got a soft spot for my hippie days for Keller Williams. But yes, that was an incredible thing. Well, just the environment, too. Because you can tell when you get into one of the spaces, just being familiar with our own, where it's a place that fosters creativity and supports that. And that was definitely one of those spaces. And it was also a much nicer warehouse than ours. It was, it was better kept that that helped with the vibe. 
But yeah, because even somebody who's that great, who floored us that much, like they also had to start somewhere and you have to foster those things in people as a community. Also to go back to Toledo House, didn't I get drunk that night? And I couldn't play the drums. My memories of you were always being a perfect drummer, so (laughs) maybe I deleted that one. There was, like, bad bros, so everyone was just like, let's get drunk. I remember everyone feeling uncomfortable, yeah. But I remember I couldn't play a beat. Like, I was so drunk that, like, my hands couldn't work together. And I was just, like, (laughs) felt so bad, but, like, it felt bad to be there. Hence why I was like, let's get drunk. Yeah, I guess I had a very different take on that. I mean, I was... You guys remember, but the listeners might not know. I didn't drink from the time I was 17, I guess, until I was maybe 22. Um, So during all those Dangerous Ponies years, I was stone cold sober. And as we were talking about, there were some serious partiers in that band. And there was just something about things for me where I just couldn't let go. I was like so afraid to not have total control over myself for my own anxiety. In a lot of ways, music was this release for me where I was like, oh, this is where I get to just fall into this creation that we've made and just like let my emotions just, you know, take me in the music. But then simultaneously, as Evan mentioned before, I've always had this deep fear of making mistakes and not being perfect on stage because so much of my self-worth is tied to how I can create and how I can perform. And it was my own mental health things that I hadn't quite understood or tapped into that was like really deciding how my creativity was going to come out and it was restrictive in its own way. It's hard to find that balance for all of us. And I think this is a time where we really get to reflect on it because we're not caught in the riptide of touring and album cycles and stuff. It's uh, it's different in hindsight. So you hit, you know, 2,499 notes out of 2,500 notes. <laughs> well, honestly, dude, I think that's probably part of my secret is that if you play enough notes, nobody's going to notice if you miss one. But also just like the way uh, my anxiety works, it's just like, okay, you have to fill this space because you're given this space. So you have to just like put everything that you can into every little bit of creation that you're given. And it's the only way to get that sort of like jittery brain operation out of my body. I must say, like, early on playing your songs, they were always, like, the most difficult. But getting to recording, oftentimes it was, like, they were the fastest and or most involved. But always getting to recording faster songs just seemed to be easier. Even though I would, like, freak out so much in my brain, it's like your body's doing so much. There's so much less space. It's just a lot easier to have everything fall into place. But, Mikey, I think you're hitting on something cool there, too. Music is very much born of our physiology. Like that's where all of the like rhythmic elements come from. Like the kick drum is very much a heartbeat where it has like that low but slow pace to it. And much of our melodies are, are in the spoken or just slightly above naturally spoken ranges and our actual like cognitive functioning. We can tell the rhythm of things. We can identify and feel rhythm of things that are like lower pitch more accurately. And we can hear the note frequency of things more accurately if they're higher pitched. And there's actually, there's a lot of experimentation going on where they're making music for cats now. And the rhythms are more kind of snare roll based and cats respond better to that because it's similar to purring. (laughs) And there's also a truth to our emotional state with tempos, like you were describing, where when you're frantic and you're fast, it's like a domino effect and you have to operate more on muscle memory. You only have so much time a very limited window to be off, like a limited degree to be off when you're moving quickly. So you just like, 
even if it's not perfect, it's naturally closer to where it's supposed to land. But when you're slow, it's so deliberate that you have to find that exact moment, that placement. And it's a skill unto itself. And to your credit, you've also become a master of that from amalgamating all those styles from people that we know and like paying attention to them and incorporating those elements into what you're doing. You miss recording drums, Mikey? I guess, yeah. I just miss the feeling of... uh the emotion of a song, like really like being into it, feeling a part. I've always admired how into a song you get during performances. Like I'll often look back and you'll be like shouting along to a part that you like to sing along to, or you'll just like have like that total full body focus that only drummers really get to do. And I can see how much you're just like concentrated in the song while you're performing. It's hard to remember to let loose and just have fun. I do like concentrate very hard because I, I just am trying my hardest to, you know, stay on that like ultimate groove. But I do want it to be fun. It's just amazing how animated people can be. Stephen Clifford from Circus Survive. Great Dude, drummer. Fucking the best drummer. But he's like trained himself to not move any muscles or waste any energy with his body other than hitting the drum that he actually needs to hit so that he can just, you know, conserve his energy, which is wild to me. Did you ever get to play his giant fucking copper drum set? No. God, that thing was so heavy. Yeah, every other drum kit is a sedan and that thing is a full on tank. Yeah. I mean, it sounded amazing. Steve is such a fucking killer drummer. Mm -hmm. He really is. Oh, do you remember the last show of that tour? I can't remember what city it was in, but the end of that night, for whatever reason, there was this obsession with fresh coconuts on that tour. And so they had gone, they'd gotten someone to go around and buy every bag of fresh coconuts from every supermarket in the area. And we walked into the green room and there was just piles of coconuts everywhere. And this distinctly stands out to me because one, they just had a hatchet and they were hacking into them to like open the coconuts and drink the fresh coconut milk out of them. But once I had one of my own to drink from, I went to bite some of the coconut flesh out of it just to eat it. And I hooked my permanent retainer on the shell of the coconut and I ripped half of it out of my mouth. And so I had a broken permanent retainer hanging out of the back of my mouth while we were finishing that tour. I spent the rest of that time with a big piece of metal just stabbing my tongue every night. That sounds terrible. Damn. Very surreal experience, though. That was cool. Being a little, you know, young, torn, fresh band where we never had done big tours, doing that big tour was a lot of fun. I don't know. I'm never going to forget it. I'm never going to forget that I was able to see Circus Survive play like seven shows in a row, you know? And I played them, too. I was just over to see... My friends, the Petries and Carm was telling me that when she got to come see us play with Taking Back Sunday, it blew her mind. She, you know, she said she she tells people all the time of the time that like she got to go like backstage and like stand right next to her favorite band <laughs> ever, and she she just she couldn't say anything. Like she was just. She <laughs> literally couldn't say anything. Possibly for the best. Those things can go sideways pretty quickly. <laughs> but, you know, it just it meant so much to her. She's like, you know, thank you. She's like, that's so awesome. It's cool to, like, impact someone's life like that. Do you have any particular shows, Mikey, that you remember super fondly? I loved watching and, and playing with the Extraordinaires. I thought they were the greatest Speaking of the Extraordinaires, one of my favorite shows ever is when they did their Christmas variety show. 
And at one point, Mikey, you joined the performance as I think your character was a police officer, right? <laughs> but you, uh, yeah, right. And you came on stage initially to bust up their party, but instead they somehow corralled you in their storyline into playing Little Drummer Boy with them. And you played the snare drum on that song while they performed Little Drummer <laughs> Boy. Such a creative and funny group of people. There's a fake gun that I shot at the end. And I had that in my book bag for such a long time. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to go into the full extent of that. So, yeah, definitely I like loved The Extraordinaires. Eric Slick, he was always something really special to watch, getting to see him play. Such an insane performer, mm-hmm. a true, true legend on the kit. Yeah, talk about a perfect drummer. <laughs> yeah, right. Some of my favorite years was getting to tour with Modern Baseball. I've had so much fun with them, both of my bands, and lots of friends' bands, getting to play with them and just be a part of their amazing experience. That was just a very fun time. Even, like, everyone I work with now, everyone there knows Modern Baseball. They ask me, like, bands I play with, I'm like, do you know Modern Baseball? Like, who doesn't know Modern Baseball? I'm like, (laughs) not a lot of people talk like that. Yeah, they seem like they're you know close to my age. Some of them. Yeah, I I also feel very fortunate to be so close with those guys. I mean, we wouldn't have gotten to many of the places that we did get to without modern baseball. They gave us a lot of opportunities and introduced us to a lot of people. And on top of all that, they're just like a bunch of sweet, charming dudes. Which total package. Oh my god. Yeah, doing that European tour with them. That's like some some of the most special memories that I will always carry with me. Yeah, I guess the way you guys were talking about like playing with bands that you grew up with, for me, it was even more significant to play with these like young guys from our alma mater who are just like good goofball dudes. And I knew Sean, a modern baseball's drummer, long before modern baseball formed. Just like coincidentally, we met at Drexel. Always a sweetheart and such a surreal thing to years later be opening for them all across Europe and riding on their tour bus with them. And yeah. It's just a wonderful thing. Uh, if you stick with this crazy rock and roll lifestyle or mellow rock and roll lifestyle with the three of us for long enough, you know, it just <laughs> some wonderful things can happen. Yeah, it's definitely some of my favorite stuff was with them. What was your favorite thing you ate on that European tour with Modern Baseball? I love a breakfast. I'm not going to lie. Eggs and some kind of starch, a meat and some bread. <laughs> That's like a nice <laughs> breakfast plate. Beans. I, too, loved the shit out of when we got to the U.K. and started ripping into the breakfast. Oh, holy moly. <laughs> Granted, I loved eating just about everything I ate when I was in all of Europe. But, God, I just fucking love a, a full English. You know what I'm saying? I will say I I did notice I personally stopped eating a bunch of crap the whole time. And we just kind of ate bread and, you know, cured meats and cheese and that was a lot of what we ate, I feel like. Right, because you could go to the grocery store and get those as snacks for, like, the same price as snacks. And we were like, wait, what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> I felt like I was feeling the toxins leave my body, just, like, all the processed crap. Like I feel my body felt different. I feel like it had to be from the food. Well, not to mention that we had that fresh mountain Austrian air, too. <sighs> Do you remember that shit? <laughs> Trying to yeah. climb that mountain with in Summer's uh, sprinter van that barely made it up. Summer's did great. Summer's did amazing, but that van was not equipped to climb a slippery, snow-covered road up the side of a mountain. Because who was it? It was, it was you, me, and Kyle, I think, got out to push it. 
to go up the mountain. And when he picked up speed, there was no way for us to catch up to him. So he just like zoomed on up the mountain. So we're like, all right, I guess we'll just follow this road up on foot until we get to the house that we're staying at. I was in the van because I was sick and the door was open the whole time we were <laughs> driving up the side of the mountain. And I was like, I'm going to fucking die. This is the end. The door would only close. Like Summers was the only person who could consistently close the door, it being his van. And if you didn't close it just the perfect way, it would just fly open while you were driving. And so blasting up the side of that mountain, it ripped open. And I'm sure Evan just like stargazing involuntarily, trying to not retch whatever was left inside of his stomach up inside of the van. A harrowing experience to be sure. Yeah, I was laying across all the seats in the back, just like my face like next to the open door. And I was like, I'm going to fucking die. This is the end. I am going to be thrown off this mountain. And then I was like, oh no, what about all the turbo dogs under the chair? And I was like, we're going to lose all our liquor and beer. And then we didn't. But then everyone drank it all that night anyway. Well, that was very noble of you. Even though your body was in dire straits, your mind was in the right place, and you preserved the uh, the old party juice for everybody to have a good time on that mountaintop. Which they did. And then I woke up everyone in the morning and was like, It's snowing and we have to go. Well, you didn't want anyone to miss out on those beautiful views and shit. It was beautiful driving down the mountain. It was the sickest. Dude, it was terrifying. Oh my God, I was so scared. I was sitting in the front with Summers while he was traveling down there. I filmed it. I have it on my phone somewhere. And just like having the feeling that we were snowboarding in a sprinter van to get down the side of that mountain was when I, we've traveled over a lot of treacherous terrain, but I don't think I've ever been that scared in a van. (laughs) I love that van. R.I.P. Old Blue. Deuces to Old Blue. Mm. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I loved that European tour. That was like, I don't know if y'all felt this way, but when we were doing that European tour, for me, it was like, you know, it felt like I was on tour for the first time again. The same way I felt touring the States for the first time. I was just like, wow, dude. I don't even want to watch this episode of The Office for the 40th time in the back (laughs) of the van. I want to just stare out the window and look at this crazy looking tree. Yeah. Oh, it didn't stop me from playing a few rounds of Simpsons wrestling every day. <laughs> I felt the same way. It definitely felt at one point I definitely got a little homesick and like in a weird headspace for a few hours. But, uh, you know, I got over that. It was just kind of like sad out and like dark and just like cold and kind of just got into a bad headspace. There's a night that was near the end of the tour that came to mind. And this is probably the closest I've ever come to being like a wild rock and roller. And it was when we were in Scotland. And Mikey, I know you and I were there. Evan, I don't know if you were with us this night. But we went out with Modern Baseball. It was very near the end of the tour to a pub at like 2 a.m. after the show. We played in Glasgow. And we were just, you know, having a good time, like drinking. And actually, Jake and Ian were discussing the future of Modern Baseball and what they were, you know, going to do because Brendan wasn't on, on that tour with them. So it was a heavy night. But after us spending a significant amount of time together, they kind of could focus more on the moment and we all had a lot of fun. And it was a very early van call because I think the drive was starting overnight and you and I were staying on the the bus that night. And so we walked back drunkenly through the streets of Scotland with them. And there was a moment where, and I was thinking about how breathtaking it was and how special it was that we had this experience with them. And that moment was only interrupted by how bad I had to urinate. And I mentioned it out loud involuntarily, as you do when you're inebriated. And you said it also, oh, man, I, I got a piss, too. And so I don't remember which one of us came up with the idea. But because we were minutes away from Van Call and we couldn't afford to stop, we just 
unzipped, turned backwards from the group, and then walked backwards down the streets of Glasgow, urinating while we were walking back towards the van so we didn't lose any time and, you know, zip back up and then kept on moving back towards the van. <laughs> Hopefully we don't get extradited for our crimes against Glasgow, but... I remember that happening in Manchester. Oh, do we do it more than once? Okay, this is a pattern of behavior now. I should be worried. I remember we stayed out mega late at that bar in Manchester because somebody was DJing or something. And I remember just like walking back to wherever we were staying so late and everyone was so drunk and like everyone just walking backwards peeing. But it could have also been like a separate, (laughs) a separate time and you could have done it separate than that when I wasn't there. I remember seeing that but also i don't know that wasn't an early van call that wasn't we were driving that was like we went back to where we were staying and conked the fuck out oh maybe i was just finding an excuse to forgive us for urinating on the street (laughs) some (laughs) justification yeah i don't know i can't remember it that well i gotta say if we're gonna bring up scotland we gotta bring up boab best dude booked every show i think we've ever played there (laughs) an absolute legend yeah such a sweetheart it was very hard to understand him, but I really, <laughs> I really tried my hardest, and I felt like by the like second time going to see him, I was a lot better at picking up at what he was saying. But I loved that guy; he was literally the nicest guy. <laughs> Speaking of Scotland again, though, I feel like that is the height of bizarre tour food, where you yeah, guys right? got the pizza crunch. That will always stay with me. No, the height of the. Bizarre tourist food was in Sweden with the Tuborg shoot. Oh, right. That's the, it's like a shrimp mayonnaise pita wrap thing. No, no, no. Isn't there some intestine thing in Glasgow that you got? Oh, yeah. Haggis. Haggis. Oh, that's a classic. You, you yeah, got Haggis? That was great. Yeah. Haggis is great. <laughs> what do you think is weirder? The shrimp thing or Haggis? I mean, I'm going to be real and I'm going to say that. Being able to go to a gas station in Sweden and get a sandwich, which was... <laughs> I remember that sandwich. Yes. It was oh, two hot dogs, your regular ketchup, mustard, relish, warm mashed potatoes, cold shrimp salad, lettuce, tomato, all wrapped up. Like, Oof. that... I, I mean, it was delicious. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but, like, no, you got to... <laughs> Like, you think that a little bit of fried intestines is a little weirder than that combination? Do you think that is, like, their version of uh, Thanksgiving the sandwich? <laughs> it's just, like, leftovers from some unknown Swedish holiday that they just put together just to get the leftovers out? Yes, I do. I think that that was just, like, a regular item at a 7-Eleven. <laughs> like, that's what we got at a 7-Eleven regularly. It was a very strange thing. I was like, what in the fuck is this food? Did anyone recall bird noises in the bathrooms? Oh, well, they had a bird clock in that one venue's restroom. All over the place. There were bird noises everywhere. Oh, I don't recall that, but you may have been tripping. No, I don't think I was. You you may have been dripping into the turlet. Yeah. Speaking of dripping, I have to piss real bad. We can wrap up. (laughs) Wait, we should do a a, a quick plugs. I no plugs. I'm just a boy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> love my boys, love my wife, love my family. My baby, my boy. The kindest. I love uh, my car boys also. Go shout out to my car boys. Car you boys. know who you are. <laughs> car boys. 
buy primal meats and have me bring it to your house. <laughs> I'm Michael Paul. And this is the Michael Paul story. <laughs> okay, bye. All right, bye. <laughs> You've been listening to the Super Week Super Weekly Supercast. Thank you, Mikey, for your double duty this week. Yeah. My baby's my boy. My baby's my boy. Mm, bye. Hey, bye. bye. <laughs>